You are listening to the Calvary Church Podcast, where each episode features a life-transforming message that was previously recorded in one of our services. And now, let's join a service that's already in progress. Well, we're going to uh, dive into our series tonight, and uh, we are doing a series called Celebrating Jesus in the Tabernacle. And the Tabernacle is one of those subjects uh, that uh, has a lot of angles to it. And honestly, when you uh, read Scripture, and especially if you're like, man, I'm all about the New Testament, that's where I stay, I try to stay in the New Testament, I want to tell you that if you understand the tabernacle, you're going to understand the New Testament in a way that you haven't understood it before. Because uh, Jesus uh, operates within the environment of the tabernacle, certainly the temple, and a lot of the things that are uh, mentioned in the New Testament really have uh, their... Uh, tracings back to the tabernacle. And, and earlier this year, we did a series on the feast, and that was a, a great, great series where we ultimately saw Jesus in the feast. And what we're hoping to accomplish in this series is for you to gain a better understanding of the Bible, yes. But my prayer tonight, as I was preparing for this, my prayer is that you would see Jesus in a way maybe you haven't seen him before, or to remember what Christ did for you in a way that maybe you've forgotten. And we're using a book just as a a resource or a guide, and if you uh, like to read, The Grace Blueprint is a great book by Lisa Taylor, and uh, I encourage you to get a copy of that. You can find it on Amazon. But as we looked at the tabernacle, uh, one of the, the major things about the tabernacle is that it's God's way of dwelling with us. And so you're here tonight. We're sitting in a building that really is a replica of sorts, right, of the tabernacle. The idea of a church building really borrows its uh, imagery and it's set up from the tabernacle. But our hope in gathering together like this is that God would be in our midst. And so the tabernacle emphasis, Exodus 25, 8, God said, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And so all the measurements, all the fixtures, everything that the tabernacle was, the idea was that God would come and dwell with them. And I don't know how you feel about God dwelling with you. Some of you have experiences with God where you can say, I feel the tangible presence of God when I come into uh, church or maybe I'm at home praying. But I can tell you today that God's intention is that he would dwell with us. Scripture tells us in the New Testament that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God's desire is to dwell in us. So we even are a symbol of that dwelling place of God. And my prayer is that God would dwell with you in that way. And so God has this master plan that he's going to dwell with us. And, and uh, he would center the children of Israel, who you find in the Old Testament, he would center them around this tabernacle. 
All right, and so God would set up his plan, set up his way around the tabernacle. We talked about that last week, about how amazing that was, that God would put his presence in the middle, and they would surround. All the different tribes were ordered to be on the north side, the south side, the east side, the west side. They were all to be there, and they, all their tents, all their dwellings were to open up towards the tabernacle. They were to open their doors, walk out, and see the tabernacle. And I think that speaks volumes to us about our lives, how we should center our lives around Jesus Christ. And so we see in the tabernacle plan, this is a kind of a drawing of it. You can see there's three main areas, and we've, we've kind of talked about them in a cursory way. Uh, there's the outer court, the most holy or the holy place and the most holy place. So tonight we're going to talk just about the outer court. We're going to talk about this place. You can see it in the slide here. It's the, the place that is surrounded by the white fence. All right, so inside, you can see how they're camped out around this uh, tabernacle area, but we're going to talk specifically about what's called the outer court. And the Israelites who desired to draw near to God had to go through some layers of security, so to speak. In, an, in a sense, God was distant from them, that he was not immediately accessible to them. And we, we mentioned the encampment, the, the, the encampment of the Israelites. But it's important to understand that even in the encampment, so they're surrounded. They've got uh, the, the tabernacle area, the outer court surrounded with tents. But even the, the Israelites who were surrounding it were still barricaded in a sense by the Levites. The Levites were the priests. They were the tribe that was responsible to minister in the tabernacle, and they surrounded it, and then the outer camp. And so there was this layer of protection. And the priest's responsibility was to validate the citizenship of those who would come to worship. So there's, there's that element. And then, as you can see, the white imposing fence that was a boundary. Now, I think it begs a question, an important question that I'm not going to be able to answer probably exhaustively, but why would a God who wants to dwell with people put a big fence around his presence and keep people out? Do you not want me to come near, right? That, that question is a logical question. And the idea is that a holy God understood that from the beginning when Adam and Eve sinned, a holy God would not dwell in sinful man or with sinful man. So he was separating himself in the sense that the holy was separated from the unholy. And in order for them to approach God, they had to come to God as holy. Now, you could say that in the garden that God cast out Adam and Eve, which he, he did, but we also understand in the garden when God cast them out, 
it wasn't a casting out of pure judgment. It was a casting out of God's grace in their life. Why is that? We'll read that. We'll see that a couple times. Because God said that I'm going to cast you out of the Garden of Eden. I'm going to put an angel to protect the garden. And I'm going to do that so that Adam and Eve could not, in their sinful state, They could not reach in and grab from the tree of life. In other words, they were not able to live eternally in sin. It was God's grace that kept them from living eternally in sin. So he cast them out. And I think that's a powerful understanding to realize that it was God's grace that separated the holy from the unholy. And so then another question emerges again. I'm not going to exhaust this question, but how can an omnipresent God, someone who is everywhere at all times, be distant? All right, so that's another angle, another question. How could that happen? And the answer we realize simply is that while God is everywhere, he is not manifested everywhere. He is, he is not visible everywhere. We know that he's everywhere because David would write in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning uh, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your hand shall uphold me. Psalm 139 is a beautiful psalm, but we, we come to that question of, of what is God going to do when it seems that he is absent. And so we realize that an omnipresent God can choose not to manifest himself if he wants to. And this is what we see in the tabernacle plan, that God, while he was able to be everywhere at once, he was not going to show up and manifest himself everywhere at once. He was going to show up in the holy. He was going to show up in this tabernacle that was set apart. And so let's look at uh, the first element of the outer court. The first element of the outer court is the, the, the fence itself, that white fence which marked the sanctuary's boundary. It was made of fine twisted linen and it was about seven and a half feet tall. And it was rectangular in shape and about 150 feet long by 75 feet. It had pillars every uh, seven and a half feet or so, and there were 20 pillars on the north side, 20 pillars on the south side, 10 pillars on the east, and 10 pillars on the west. Again, when I think about this, I, I, I think about not just the structure of it, but you think about the fact that they had to tear this down and set this up, tear this down, set this up, and that was done by the priesthood. And so many believe that the, the white fence uh, was made of one piece of white linen. And again, you, when you see imagery of this, you'll see it in different ways. Some you'll be able to see from the outside, you'll see pillars, and some show it like this where it's pretty much one piece. The Bible doesn't tell us that, but what we realize is that there are silver caps on the top, and there are bands that wrap around, and they would hook 
though that linen outer court uh, curtain, so to speak, that fence on those pillars, and uh, they would they would use this and set this up to wrap the tabernacle itself, and they would create literally a courtyard by doing this. If you're camping and you're looking at this, this white linen fence is going to stand out amongst the landscape. And it's hard to not understand that or to really uh, uh, not make emphasis of that because everything you're seeing, imagine you walk out of your tent and you're seeing the mountains, you're seeing the dirt, you're seeing the wilderness, you're seeing all of this, and then there's this massive white fence. And in Scripture... White is symbolic of holiness. It's symbolic of purity and righteousness. So let's look at Daniel 7, verse 9 real quick. He said, I watched till thrones were put into into place and the ancient of days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. And so you see this prophecy of garment, a garment that was white. In Mark chapter 9, verse 2, if you've got your Bibles, follow along with me. Mark chapter 9, verse 2 says that after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them to a mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And what happened? His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them uh, with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So when Jesus is transfigured, how does he appear? He appears in white. He appears in this uh, imagery of white like snow. So then let's look at Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So here again, you get this idea of bright linen. In Revelation 19, it continues verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like the flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself and he was clothed with the robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God and the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, Followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it that he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule with the rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That imagery is coming from the tabernacle, it's coming from this idea. And so I find the fence, you think about the fence, well, it's just a fence, but it represents Jesus Christ. It represents the holiness that he invites us to. 
He allows us to be partakers of his holiness. Not only is he, when he was transfigured, was he bright, but in Revelation it tells us that we too will be uh, with white robes on. And literally you could say that the fence is wrapping the tabernacle. The fence was wrapping the tabernacle. It was robing the tabernacle. The tabernacle was robed in white. Isn't that awesome? Because when you start looking at Scripture and you go, wow, that, that is telling me something in it, what we realize it's telling us is of heavenly things. When you read the tabernacle, you're not just reading about an Old Testament imagery. You're reading something that literally spans eternity. God's trying to tell us something about who he is and what he wants for us. So powerful. All right, now let's go to the next element because you've got the, the fence that is a fence of separation. However, it was designed in a way that you could enter into it. All right, so God could have put the uh, priest inside of the tabernacle and somehow figured out a way to only let them in, but he made a gate. Everyone say gate. All right, now, some particulars about the gate that I think is, is good to know. First, it's on the eastern end. So every time they sat up the, sat the, or put up the tabernacle, they would put the gate towards the east, all right? And then they would put the, the, the most holy place would be on the westernmost end. And that, I think, is significant. And so here you have this white fence with this image of a gate that has different elements to it and, and Exodus chapter 27, verse 16, it says, For the gate of the court there will be a screen 20 cubits long, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen made by a weaver. It shall have four pillars and four sockets. And so it was a gate that was a way for people to get in. Now, I think one of the big things about the gate is that there was one way to get in. There was one way to get in. Again, this is a principle you see through Scripture, starting with Adam and Eve. When God put the angel to guard the, guard the garden, it was one way to get into the garden. It was one way. When Noah built the ark, there was one door to get into the ark. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, I'm the gate. If you're going to get into my presence, you're going to come through me. The second thing I think, as I mentioned this a little bit, but I, I want to dig for just a minute on this. The tabernacle was set up so that the gate faced east. All right? 
So when people would come into the tabernacle, they would walk through the eastern gate. But maybe what you don't process is that they are walking west. In order to get to the holy place and the most holy place, God said, I want it set up so that they walk through the eastern gate, but they're going west to find my presence. All right? Now, why I think that's significant is Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed a cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The gate to the garden was to the east. So what he was essentially telling them was that in order to come back to the original state with me, you walk west. Because the garden, in order to get into the garden, you were going to walk west to get into the garden. The the gate of the garden was to the east. But he's saying that my presence is available to you. I'm opening back up that gate. That gate that was closed, I'm making a way for you to walk back to find my presence and to be in an original state with me. Isn't that awesome? So tonight, let me conclude with two pieces of the furniture in the outer court. So the court is wrapped with a fence and a gate. But upon entering the courtyard, the first object a worshiper would see was a massive bronze altar that was located between the eastern gate and the sanctuary door. The altar, known as the altar of burnt offering, it was the largest piece of furniture in the entire tabernacle, seven and a half feet square. It was about four and a half feet tall. It was so large that some say that you could fit all the other pieces of the tabernacle inside of the altar or the bronze altar. It's made of acacia wood and covered in bronze. And it had a grate inside. The grate went about halfway down, and there was nothing to the bottom, and there was nothing on top. It was just a grate in the middle, and it would be what would hold the sacrifice and the fire. And it was, it was hollow other than the sides, and it, it had a ledge, they said, on the outside that they would build a ramp to so that the priest could minister down into the altar. And there were rings that were on the sides so that they could carry it and move it. The word altar means a place of sacrifice, and the bronze altar was vital to humanity coming to dwell with his people because it was there that 
the animals were sacrificed. The blood of these animals that were brought for atonement began here. They were slain here in the altar and put on the altar. The altar was a place also for consecration and dedication of the people of God. There were wave offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings and grain offerings that were all happening here. The altar was made of bronze. It is believed that this metal would have been inferior in value to silver and gold. And so when we talked about this last week, when you walk towards the the most holy place, you realize the value of what was happening because you had the bronze here and then you made your way towards the gold uh, uh, Ark of the Covenant and Mercy seat. But people were to bring a sacrifice. They were to bring something to the altar. Leviticus chapter 6 verse 12 says, and the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay burnt offerings in order on it. And he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. A fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. It was one of the responsibilities of the priest to get up every morning and to make sure that fire never went out. I'm reminded of what Paul said, that I die daily. I I think you could probably make that connection that he was not just referring to physical death, but looking back towards a tabernacle where every day we have to wake up and we have to die out to who we are. If we're going to experience the power in the presence of God in our lives, we have to have a daily sacrifice, a place where God reigns supreme, that, that our carnality is burnt, our carnality is laid aside. And we know that fire is used in different ways, and even in the context of the tabernacle, the fire is used in different ways. But fire is many times used in association with judgment. We talked about the angel who stood at the east of the garden with a flaming sword. When you look at Sodom and Gomorrah and the fire and brimstone that fell, and the the picture of hell is a picture of a fire that does not go out. But what we understand is that this fire consumed the sacrifice. The point was that the sacrifice would be completely changed, forever changed. And what was left was presented to God as an offering. And so when we look at this altar, if you can put that picture back on the screen of the altar, the last element of the bronze altar I want you to consider tonight is the four horns on each corner of the altar. And in ancient cultures, the horn was a metaphor for physical strength or spiritual strength. So let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 17. It says, his glory is like a firstborn bull, his horns like the horns of a wild ox. Together with him, he shall push the people to the ends of the earth. It's this power. It's this ability to move, to push. And there are 10,000s of Ephraim and there are thousands of Manasseh. He's prophesying to Joseph. But the horn, the horns are represented on this altar. And what I think is intriguing to consider is that if you think about the horn of an animal, the horn is literally the crown 
of the animal, isn't it? It's the crown of the animal. It's what many animals use to demonstrate their power. You ever seen deer or you ever seen uh, animals push their horns together. The horns show and demonstrate power. It's like a crown. And when you think about the analogy for kings and powers, there's a crown that is given. You have power now, and we're going to put a crown on your head. And when we consider the four horns of the altar, we see these four horns. The number four is used in different ways in in Scripture, and it often represents things of the earth. There are four corners of the earth, so north, south, east, and west. There's four seasons in uh, uh, our climate. And when you consider the tabernacle, there's four fabrics of blue, purple, scarlet, and white. There are four attributes of God that are often symbolized in the Old and New Testament. There are four faces in Ezekiel, and there's four living creatures in Revelation. But what we see in this idea of these horns is what I believe is an image of a crown. The priest would put the blood on each of those horns. And what we see, what I see when I see that imagery of the altar, it's not just an altar, but it's an altar with horns on it. In other words, I see it as a crown, a crown that we see in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I would argue that, Thorns are the horns of the plant world, that there are thorns that were placed on Jesus's brow, that he wore the horns on his head, and those horns had blood on them. But those crown of thorns or that crown of horns was not just a a crown that just represented death. But what did it represent? It represented power. It represented that Christ would be the king of every human being, that he would die and he would take authority over everything. The blood became this symbol of power and a symbol of victory. And so the the writer of Psalm 18:2 said, "The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold." And in Luke chapter 1, It says, now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the spirit and prophesied, saying, blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Those horns were significant. It pointed to who Jesus was and what he would do for us. And so we can see Jesus in the altar of sacrifice, not only was he our sacrifice, but he was our victory in the sacrifice. Then we see this final piece of furniture in the outer court that we'll consider tonight. It's the bronze laver. The bronze laver was directly in line with uh, the, al- the bronze altar. It was positioned between the bronze altar and the entrance to the holy place. Interestingly, there's no dimensions that are given of this uh, labor. But what we know it is used for, Exodus chapter 30, verse 17, the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 18, you shall also make a labor of bronze 
With this base also of bronze for washing, you shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in the water from it when they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord. They shall wash with water lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die and it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their Generation. So he's telling them that before they could minister, before they could even uh, minister at the altar, they had to go and wash in this labor. And certain, even certain sacrifices were washed in this labor of water. And so what I think of when I think of this labor is the idea that as those priests would wash and then they would sacrifice that by the time they finished what they were doing, that water would be mixed, would be mixed with blood, would be mixed with what they were washing off of their hands. And certainly in John chapter 19, 34, it says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and what came out blood and water. First John 5, 6 says, this is he who came by water and by blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who bears witness because the spirit is truth. And so we see Christ in this labor. And it wasn't just used for washing either, but it was a point where the priest could look into the labor of water because it was made of mirrors. I want you to look at Exodus chapter 38, verse number 8. Describes how it was made. He made the labor of bronze and its base of bronze. And from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. That women donated their mirrors for this particular piece of furniture. Imagine doing without your mirror. No problem. Some, and the man, Nathan Varnum, says it doesn't matter. But the women are the ones who donated the mirrors. And how costly that would have been. How precious to them that would have been. They let go of their beauty. And they allowed God's priestly image to be seen. And washing causes us to reflect on who we are. James chapter 121, therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save, save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. It was in this washing that the priests would see who they were and the, did they reflect the image that God had prepared for them. And Jesus can be seen in the labor. Ephesians chapter 5, 25. 
It says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Why? That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and without blemish. In other words, so the church could move into the presence of God because a holy God does not dwell in the unholy. So how is the unholy, how are we going to be made holy? Through Christ. He allows us to be holy, to be cleansed so we can be in his presence. So what he did on the cross made a way for us to be washed to be sanctified. I conclude tonight with the story in the New Testament where Jesus finds himself in the temple. It's right before Jesus is going to be crucified. And he finds himself in this temple, a temple that was designed after the tabernacle. It had been destroyed and it was rebuilt. And there was this section in the temple and it reflected the outer court. It was an important place, just as it was an important place for those who wanted to come in and bring their sacrifices. But what was different in this time period with Jesus was that as people came, they were coming from thousands of miles away. And so in order for them to make a sacrifice, instead of dragging an animal thousands of miles or hundreds of miles, they would come to this place, this outer court, and they would buy their sacrifice. They would come in and they would pay some money and say, you know what, I'll, I'll just go ahead and buy the sacrifice and then I'll just quickly lead it over to the tabernacle or to, over to the priest and he will do what he's supposed to do and that will be my worship. But what was the design of the outer court ultimately in God's mind? Well, Jesus tells us what this place was really designed for. And so it says in Mark eleven fifteen, they came to Jerusalem. Jesus went into the temple. Now, it doesn't mean he went into the holy place or the most holy place. He came into the outer court, the courtyard area. And when he came into the outer court, that temple area, he began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. He overturned the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple he stopped them. He said, no, this is not right because there was a, a, there was a way for people to kind of shortcut and walk through this outer court area and it allowed them to, to not have to walk out and around and he was tired of them using this space for something it wasn't intended for. It wasn't intended as a place of convenience. It wasn't intended as a place to just get by and to mingle and socialize. It was a place for people to find God. And so he says, and he taught them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. You've made what was intended to allow my presence to dwell. You've made it a place of transaction and trade. It's just a simple place that, that really doesn't have meaning. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 56, 7. 
in which Isaiah says, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And what they had created was chaos in the courtyard. They had essentially eliminated those who were wanting to worship God from being able to worship God. And so, in Matthew chapter 21, we read the story. In verse 12, it says, he drove out those who sold the temple. Verse 13, he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And watch the next verse. After he did this, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The people it was intended for finally had an opportunity to not be bumped into and and not be pushed aside because they didn't quite fit the mold or they, they were in the way of hurried people. And so this outer court had significance and meaning. And Christ said, it's so my presence can dwell and people can find me. And so we look at this outer court, and I don't know how you feel or what might have resonated with you, but I want you to take just a minute here to talk to somebody near you. I want you to just answer one or both of these questions. What part of the outer court did you see Jesus most clearly? What part of the outer court did you see Jesus most clearly? And the second question is, how does the outer court resonate with your walk with God today? All right, I'll give you a minute to answer one or both of those questions. Hopefully you had a chance to process that. I think uh, the tabernacle is such a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ does in our life. And it speaks of heavenly things. It speaks of heavenly things. And you can literally pull the cord of the tabernacle through the whole Bible. And you see God's plan of redemption for us. Why don't you stand with me tonight? I want to pray that God just continues to speak to you about his plan for your life, his love, and how he wants to use your life in this world as the temple of the Holy Ghost. I encourage you to read Exodus 25 through 40, and I pray that as we're studying this and looking at different aspects, that 
you may see even more of Christ in Exodus 25 through 40. And I, I encourage you to read in the New Testament Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 really outlines the tabernacle. Kristen may reference it in the upcoming lessons, but uh, it's, a, it's a powerful way for you to see the tabernacle uh, as it pertains to the New Testament. And so uh, I want to pray in closing, pray that God continues to use us in the way that he desires that we would be everything he's created us to be. Lord, we thank you for tonight. I thank you for your word that is so powerful to us, Lord. You've given us clear images in scripture, pictures, Lord, of who you are and what you want to do in our lives. You teach us how far you came and to love us, to care for us, to invite us into your holiness and your way. I pray that we would not trample, as the New Testament says, the blood uh, of sacrifice. We would not take for granted, Lord, what you did on the cross where you literally fulfilled the tabernacle for us. You made us participants in your holiness and in your love and in your grace. I pray, God, that we would be to our coworkers what we need to be, our classmates, Lord, those we're interacting with, our family, that we would be a temple of hope, that our lives would be wrapped in your brightness, in in your holiness, Lord, that they would see you in us. Lord, if there's anything in us that needs to die, anything that's not like you, I pray that every day we would kneel at the altar of sacrifice and we would say, God, make us in your image. Make us in your way. Let us take on your blood and your mercy, God, so that we can be what you've called us to be. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.